Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 7, Episode 17, The Born Again Identity, written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Robert Singer. We are finally here. We finally get Cass back. Well, sort of. His return, like Cass's own self-awareness, is still a little wobbly. But like putting words on a page so that they can be edited later, we have him back. And that's a very, very good start. Can't edit until you got words on the page, you know? But I obviously will have a lot to say about this one. A lot has already been said about this one, but it's still worth talking about, if for no other reason, as the reward and catharsis for having survived the Gamble era to this point. We deserve that much, and this is a beautiful and heart-wrenching episode to linger on a little bit. We get so much good. It reminds me that no matter what I think of Sarah's deficiencies as a showrunner, she can still write one hell of a killer episode. It really does feel like a turning point in the series, and I've always personally viewed it as the resignation letter and forced apology from Sarah Gamble for having tried to kill Cass off in the first place. I know this feeling has no basis in reality, but it pleases me to imagine Jeremy Carver standing over her shoulder and making her put Cass back where she got him from. Because we all know what Carver thought of Cass and Misha. I can't imagine he wouldn't have made that a condition of his coming back in order to take over the show running. You know, he wanted Cass. But of course, Sarah couldn't make his return just as problematic as his demise had been. Or maybe she could give him amnesia, a confusing backstory, apparently a wife who found him naked in a river and just brought him home to keep. Because that's all reasonable, right? I've got theories about this, though, and we will cover those when we get there, but yikes on bikes, so just a heads up about that. I will be pausing at the turn into Earth scene to weep, though. (laughs) It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. There's also just so damn much Destiel in this one that I feel like wandering out into a lake and exploding myself over it, you know? In this week's post for this episode, I've linked to some of the more pointedly Destiel meta posts that I have in my tag for this one for the sake of convenience. But we also finally, after so long a drought without one, have a script for this episode. It's a very early draft, and some things changed between it and the final version that aired, but it's still an interesting and enlightening read. I find it interesting that the first page of the script is a note about how top secret the episode was, that the information in the script was not to be leaked or shared because of Cass's dramatic return. And then leading up to the episode, when it aired, they decided to heck with that and promote the hell out of Cass's big comeback, then put his name right there in the opening credits. Funny that, that by the point this episode aired from the time it was first conceived, uh, they'd been having some viewership problems. (laughs) They wanted to draw in a huge audience for this one, and they teased it with Cass. I also need to mention up front that if it weren't for this episode, I likely never would have watched Supernatural at all. A friend of mine had been trying to convince me to watch it for a while, like a couple years, And when I missed the season seven premiere, she told me unequivocally not to start watching. So I watched her struggle with the series for the better part of a year, agonizing along with her without really knowing what the fuck she was on about, but I was sympathetic. And I had intended to watch the show from the start back in 2005, but in the chaos of moving house that fall, I kind of missed a lot of shows that started in the fall of 2005. And then I was too busy to figure out how to go back and catch up on what I'd missed. But then, eventually, the whole series turned up on Netflix. And the night this episode aired, I got a message from my friend, screaming at me to ignore everything she'd been complaining about all year, and go start watching the show from the start right now immediately. 
So I signed up for Netflix and started watching, and I haven't really stopped again since. So, tells you where my jumping on point for this show was. So, y'all owe my even being here at all, doing any of this, to this episode. And I realize I haven't even touched on Meg or Sam yet. And, gosh, we have lots to talk about. So let's get right into the then segment, shall we? We open with a voiceover of Bobby telling us the wall in Sam's head is gone, with flashes of Sam unconscious, visions of hell, and then Sam telling us last week that every time he closes his eyes, Lucifer is yelling at him, as Sam nearly falls asleep at the wheel and crashes into a semi. As Lucifer yells at Sam, Dean reminds him it's not actually Lucifer, but regardless, Sam has no control over it. His hand scar, the Lucifer Be Gone button, has stopped working because Sam actually acknowledged Lucifer, spoke to him, even if it was just to tell him to shut up. Which brings us to now. The episode opens with Sam running, staggering around even, running into people, in scene cuts that feel reminiscent of 4-6 Yellow Fever when Dean was running terrified from the Yorkie dog, Sam barges down an alleyway, interrupting a drug deal, and collapses to the ground, begging to be left alone. Through his whole interaction with this drug dealer, we also see Hallucifer running his constant banter, tormenting Sam with it, and filling us in on the current situation Sam's in. He's been awake for five days, and when the dealer offers to help knock him out, that only lasts a few minutes before the hallucifering starts up again. As Sam tries to run away yet again, Hallucifer lets us know the longest a normal person has ever survived without sleep was 11 days. So if Sam's normal, and not like Solus Sam who didn't sleep for a year, then he'll be dead inside a week. And then Sam gets smashed by a car. And on that cheerful note, we cut to the title card. Post-title card, Dean barges into a doctor's office, demanding to know what's going on with his brother. The doctor tells him Sam's physically going to be okay, but that he's on their locked psychiatric ward due to the not sleeping and attendant psychotic episode he's experiencing. Dean's defensive of Sam's mental state at first, but the doctor is kind and genuinely trying to help Sam. The doctor is still baffled by Sam's resistance to even the highest dose of sedatives they could safely give him, and he leads Dean to Sam's room. We cut in there to see Sam looking real ragged in bed, while Hallucifer still will not shut up, taunting Sam about not needing sleep when he was soulless, when Dean walks in, Hallucifer starts insulting Dean. And remember, he's just part of Sam's own mind and soul, so calling Dean, quote, Mr. Helpless, and implying that he's an alcoholic, is also coming from Sam, some deep part of him. Dean immediately promises that he will find something to help Sam, much like Dean replied to the exact same sentiment from Sam way back in 112 Faith, Sam's fairly convinced that nothing can save him. Sam even references the fake Faith healer with a reaper on a leash that healed Dean the last time in that episode. But Dean expresses his desperation. They have to try something, not just give up. But like Dean in 112, Sam is resigned to his impending death, and somehow he still manages to lay blame for that on Dean. That Cass warned Dean what putting his soul back would mean, that wall was not permanent. Dean is momentarily pissed at the reminder about Cass, but Sam is tired. It's just a result of all the torture Lucifer inflicted on him, and Sam doesn't believe any faith healer will have a cure for that. Dean leaves, heads back to Rufus's cabin, and starts pouring through their journals, making calls to every hunter contact he has, asking for help, hitting dead ends with all of them. 
He's about to start in on Bobby's journal when he realizes his beer is gone. He tosses the journal down on a table, goes to get another drink, and while his back is turned, we hear a spooky, ghostly whooshing sound before the journal flings itself onto the floor. When Dean picks it up, a business card for Mackie's taxidermy is lying beneath it. Yes, we all know it's Bobby's ghost pointing him in the right direction, but Dean doesn't know that when he throws a Hail Mary pass and calls the number scrawled on the back of the card. He leaves a message. We've seen shots of Sam in the hospital trudging through the routine, but when the doctor comes in to check on him, he turns out to be just another hallucination. That border between reality and the hallucinations is crumbling for Sam. Hallucifer points out the two of them there on the locked ward is just like being back in the cage. And isn't that a cheerful thought? Sam's dinner arrives later that night, and when he takes a bite to eat his sandwich, he hallucinates that it's full of maggots, reminiscent of the cursed husband in 3-9 Malleus Maleficarum, who bites into a cheeseburger that turns out to be filled with maggots. Sam drops the sandwich and recoils across the bed, only to look up and see a girl in the doorway watching him, and then running away. Sam's not even really sure she was real, I don't think. Back at the cabin, Dean's resorted to the internet to try and find a lead on anyone who might be able to help. He's looking at a site called Amazing Grace Helping Friends, proclaiming the power of prayer can be your salvation. All major credit cards accepted. I'm sure that's totally a legit operation. Dean looks equally unconvinced when his phone rings. It's Mackie from the mysterious business card. He's sorry about Bobby, but he thinks he has something that could help Dean. He tells his whole story. A man called Emmanuel, who showed up on his radar a couple months ago. Mackie thought he was just another fraud, but Emmanuel cured his blindness. He's the real deal. And just like that, Dean has hope again. A very fine thread of hope, but he'll take it. It's all he's got. Back at the hospital, Hallucifer is torturing Sam with a bullhorn, making all kinds of awful noises. When the girl from the hallway comes back, she offers Sam a chocolate bar, hoping he might like it better than the food he recoiled from. She introduces herself as Marin. She knows that his name is Sam, but before Sam can reply, Lucifer starts in with the horrible sounds from the bullhorn again, and Sam keeps flinching, so Marin leaves, probably believing she was upsetting him. The poor thing, she just wanted to do a nice thing for Sam. Meanwhile, Dean's arrived at the house where Emmanuel apparently lives. It's a nice, quiet, slightly fairy tale sort of place. A man in a sweater answers the door, claiming to be Emmanuel, and comes out on the porch to talk, pushing Dean back from the front door, conveniently, because as he tries to explain his situation, Dean's got the perfect vantage point to see something through the window. There's a woman bound and gagged inside. Dean immediately knows something is wrong and doesn't have to wonder for long what that might be when the man's eyes flash demon black and he attacks Dean. Dean warns this demon that Crowley ordered the demons to leave the Winchesters alone, but the demon is smug about the fact that Dean's done nothing for Crowley lately. He hasn't gotten rid of Dick Roman. But whatever Emmanuel is, Crowley will want him a lot more than he wants Dean. And I'm just cackling at that one, like, Crowley, <laughs> love triangle. <laughs> anyway, but that little villain monologue was just enough of a distraction for Dean to pull the demon knife out of his pocket and stab the guy with. As the demon falls dead to the porch and then rolls down the front steps, he lands at someone's feet. Dean's had a witness to his murder. But he can hardly believe his eyes as the man looks up at him in confused horror. It's Cass, of course, or he looks just like Cass, and he doesn't seem to have any idea what that demon was. Inside the house, Cass unties the woman with gentle care 
as Dean tries not to watch, but it's like watching a slow motion train crash. And I think this is a good moment to pause and talk about Daphne here for a minute. Later context helps us actually understand what we're seeing in this scene. I'm absolutely fascinated by the way Cass and Daphne interact. There's a gentleness, but no familiarity or fondness or even tenderness from Cass toward her. They don't embrace or kiss when she's freed. He only gives her the most cursory of once-overs before dragging her over to Dean. He doesn't even take her hand like a couple might. He grabs her by the wrist to do it. And she just goes along with this. And that kind of feels like the entirety of her character, you know? She's a prop. We've already been told that Emmanuel here has supposedly been around for a couple of months. And we're never fully told why or how he was resurrected. Or even if he was actually fully dead before washing up in a river and being plucked out by Daphne. Yes, I know, we won't hear that full story for a little bit. But I'm talking about it now, dang it. There's been a good number of theories over the years about who Daphne might have been or why she felt compelled to have Emmanuel tell people that they were married. I mean, there's absolutely no way they were legally, officially married. Cass had been stripped of everything, and if Daphne even tried for a second to figure out who this naked amnesiac man was, the Jimmy Novak beacon would have been sounded and Amelia would have come running, you know? The best theories we've had revolve around the line that Cass gives Dean in a bit in the car. Daphne said God wanted her to find him, which makes absolute perfect sense in a Chuck plot way. He wanted her to find him. Was she an angel or just some human touched by God and given this weird mission? Or was it all just a construct? much the way the equalizer gun was that Chuck gives Dean in 1420. Just made up on the spot, materialized for the purpose, and then poofed away when it was no longer needed. Someone to babysit Cass until he was needed again for plot reasons at the most dramatic possible point. Because when Cass does come back, it plays right into Dean's angst, his grief, his trauma, and his desperation to save the last thing he has left, Sam. And Cass gets boxed up again almost as soon as he finds himself again, because again, we have so much emotional baggage left to handle between him and Dean. Because of the way Sarah disposed of him in the first place, making him the villain of season six and then the instigator of season seven's big bad, He needed to have this space to make all of that right. But Cass himself is not unchanged by his ordeals. In a very real way, bringing him back this way as an emotional cornerstone, a stone one for Dean to begin rebuilding himself around, he becomes integral not just to the plot, but to the emotional core of the series. And I appreciate that so much. It's implied that Cass doesn't even technically live with Daphne. That you contact Daphne to get a hold of Cass, and then she contacts him and sends him along. That she acts more as a home base and coordinator. And she just sends him out to help people that call her. It's couched in the terms that she is his wife, but the relationship seems to be non-existent outside of that. Not to mention that when Dean asks for help... Cass just leaves with him, never to return, never to even mention Daphne again, as if she never existed at all. And she was apparently fine with all of that, never sought him out again either, like her mission from God had been completely fulfilled, and she just went back to her regular life, or poofed out of existence entirely. There's also the Greek myth of the nymph named Daphne, who was romantically pursued by Apollo and didn't want his advances. Out of desperation, she prayed to be turned into a laurel tree to hide from Apollo, which kind of goes back to all this having been just a shield and a shelter for Cass, especially since Daphne's house was kind of obscured by a massive hedge of what 
could very well pass for laurel trees, which I find incredible because the casting department went all out on finding a woman who could play the Rule 63 version of Dean, you know? She looks like Femme Dean, which is kind of shattering when Cass walks over to shake Dean's hand and thank him for saving his wife. As if Cass picked out the most Dean-looking woman he could to marry. (laughs) While Daphne looks adoringly up at Cass, not like a wife relieved to be reunited with her loving husband, but like a devotee looking into the face of an angel. Ha ha. Cass expresses his distress over what he saw on the porch. He saw the true face of the demon before Dean killed him, but he has no words to express what he saw. He has no idea what a demon even is, apparently, until Dean tells him. Cass is shocked that a demon walked the earth. And Dean's incredulous because loads of them do. It's kind of shocking that Emmanuel hadn't just seen more weird stuff out and about healing folks until now, too. Almost like something really had been shielding him from it. Whether it be Daphne herself or Chuck interfering to keep him in a protective bubble. It wouldn't do for him to get his memories back before he's needed for plot, right? But this is what makes Dean realize that Cass isn't just putting on an act. He really has no idea who Dean is or what Dean's talking about. But Daphne just accepts all of this because Emmanuel has very special gifts. And while Dean's struggling to process any of that, he says he's heard Emmanuel can heal people too. Which Cass addresses quite matter-of-factly by asking what Dean's issue is. And the camera cuts back to Dean, who looks like he's about to start sobbing on the spot. Because, yeah, this whole situation is his problem right now. But eventually he manages to choke out my brother. Instead of grabbing Cass by his dorky little sweater and yelling at him until he remembers who Dean is. And honestly, good for him for holding all that in. I don't know if I could have. We then cut back to the hospital. In an overhead shot of Sam lying in bed, framed upside down, much the way he was back in Bobby's panic room when he was detoxing from demon blood. Only this time, his hallucination is just Lucifer throwing firecrackers and blasting music. But Lucifer is pleased because he won! Sam's brain has given up, and a Lucifer is convinced that the guy that saved the world once has been defeated by his own madness. An orderly brings Sam his dinner, and while Lucifer torments him about it, the orderly is actually nice to him, asking how he's doing. Sam asks the man about the girl, Marin, but the orderly can't tell him about it, obviously, only says that she didn't get there because of an accident the way Sam did. The orderly leaves, and Sam doesn't even try to eat. He just rolls over, feeling miserable as Lucifer resumes the firecrackers. We cut to Dean driving with Cass late that night. Funny, because they left Daphne's house during the day, and Dean's only now apparently getting around to asking about her. This is where we hear the strange story of how Daphne found him and cared for him. And I wonder how many people have even bothered to ask Cass about her to this point, you know? Is this the first time he's had to relate this strange tale to anyone else? Nobody who he healed was probably worried about the woman that they contacted to get him to come visit them, you know? They're only worried about their own cure that they're getting. But Cass tells Dean that he may not like the story. Dean insists that he will, and who boy. We know how much he'll like it. Well, maybe like isn't the right word, but He's got to be curious as fuck. After Cass briefly describes how Daphne rescued him and took him in, Dean has no idea what to do with all of that and asks who named him Emmanuel instead. Bouncybabynames.com But again, it feels too on the nose to be totally random. Dean agrees the name is working for him, but then goes on to imagine how weird it would be not knowing who you are. In a very gentle and roundabout way, Dean is poking at this, trying to figure out 
how much of Cass might actually be in there. Cass had accepted his life, though. Says it's a good life. And Dean pokes some more. He asks, well, what if you were a bad guy before? And Cass tries to answer honestly that he doesn't feel like a bad person. And honestly, yes, that's the crux of it. He didn't think he was a bad person as he slowly boiled himself throughout season six. He was convinced he was doing the right thing, even as it all began to unravel on him. He thought he had no other choice. The plot forced him into the worst of what he did, and he felt justified even as his list of atrocities grew. Even before he swallowed purgatory and his crimes could mostly be laid on the Leviathan or the purgatory souls, He'd already killed Balthazar, and he broke Sam's wall, and he lied to Dean through all of it. Until his 11th hour regrets, when he was finally able to admit that he overreached, that he needed help, and that he couldn't fix what he'd broken. But by then it was too late. The Leviathans escaped, and Cass had been gone. And now that he's back, he still doesn't remember any of that. He has no idea who he is. And Dean's been struggling with all of that, with Cass's betrayal and lack of trust in him, yes, but also with his own grief over having lost Cass before they could even begin to try to patch things up between them. And for the first time since Cass disappeared in that lake, Dean's having to confront it all again with Cass, but not really Cass. It's just, there's a lot of feelings happening here. Back at the hospital, Sam's staring out the window when Marin comes back with another chocolate bar. Miraculously, for once, Lucifer's not there interfering. Strange how Sam gets this brief reprieve to share this moment of humanity and help this girl. He asks her to share the candy with him, but Sam can't even get the wrapper open. So instead, he asks her about herself. She's been there five weeks. When Sam asks what for, she gives the, quote, doctor answer of psychotically depressed with suicidal ideation and turns to leave. But Sam stops her and asks for the not doctor answer. And she's painfully honest with him. I need to point out that this actress who plays Marin is Casey Roll the daughter of Mike Roll, a regular director of Supernatural. And in fact, his final episode was 714 Plucky Pennywhistles just a few weeks ago. That's all. I just needed to point that out. She got that job completely independent of him and just did an excellent job of it. So good for her. She tells Sam she wants everything to be over and expects him to tell her that she's young and has everything to live for. But Sam asks why she would even believe him if he tried that. He understands where she's coming from. She tells him that she knows he's there because the voices won't let him sleep. Guesses kind of sarcastically whether it's Charlie Manson or the devil. But Sam laughs. It kind of is. Well, Marin hears a voice too. Sam asks her if that's why she set the fire. And she's immediately on the defensive almost backing out of the room. How did Sam know that? He points to her bandaged wounds that he recognizes as burns. But she's adamant that she did not set that fire. He did. She makes an excuse because, of course, she expects Sam to just think she's crazy and starts to leave. Sam calls her back saying it's okay, and she yells that it's not okay. Sam's crazier than her. Charles Manson tells him what to do, but at least it's her own brother. But then she stops herself. Sam is intrigued, and Marin tells him the rest. It sucks when your dead brother says to kill yourself to be with him, or that he'll do it for you. When she finally leaves, Sam has a puzzle to mull over at least, and that's about the longest reprieve he'll get from Hallucifer until he's finally healed later in this episode. We cut back to Dean's car, where Cass is asking about his brother. At least there's no willful brother murdering happening on their end. 
Dean tells him Sam's problem isn't medical, and Cass is unconcerned because he can cure illnesses of a spiritual origin, which is what finally pokes Dean too hard for him to ignore. The conversation after this point is full of weight and feeling while still being so incredibly careful. Dean is terrified that if he tips his hand and says something to trigger Cass's memories, that he'll just disappear again. And Cass is his last hope of saving Sam. Not to mention, Dean really does want Cass back in his life, in a whatever way I can have him, since, at least, baby steps. Which sums up this whole tense era for them, too. Their relationship will improve through baby steps and backslides. And Dean just can't let himself have too much hope or put too much pressure on Cass. But he wants to so badly. So in typical Dean fashion, he talks around the problem, tries to sneak up on it sideways. But at least he puts his feelings down. Unfortunately for Cass, who will still remember all of this, Dean's feelings are coming from a place of very deep hurt. Dean just focuses on the road and says that someone did this to Sam. And Cass can even tell that Dean is angry about this. And Dean replies that, yes, someone broke Sam this way. Of course he's angry. And Cass is just too intuitive not to see that Dean feels betrayed about this, that the person who did this was Dean's friend. And Dean turns away from Cass and says, yeah, well, he's gone. And I just have to pause here to breathe into a paper bag. Because Castiel, his friend of years, might be gone, but this guy who is Cass is sitting there, but it's not Cass. It's got to be agony for Dean. Then, of all things, Cass asks if Dean killed this person. Because he senses Dean kills a lot of people. And just, this feels like insight into what Cass can sense about people as an angel, you know? I don't think he can do a full brain scan and read minds without intent, or he would have known what Dean's deeper issues were in this moment. The dance around the issues conversations wouldn't have been possible, but he can sense general personality stuff like this. But Dean doesn't even dare open that can of worms and just moves on. He doesn't know if the guy who hurt Sam is dead or not, as You know, he's talking to him, sort of, right now. (laughs) But he has no idea if any of Cass is even in there. But like he's tried with Bobby, with Elliot Ness, and then with Frank over the course of this season, Dean talks about his feelings. His messy, messy feelings. He used to be able to shake things like this off. But what Cass did, he just can't. And he doesn't know why bothering him. The fact that he can't just let it go. Well, partially, he hasn't had Cass there to even, like, hash this out with. It was unresolved when Cass disappeared. He was just gone, and Dean was on his own and forced to pick up everything as the rest of his life was gradually stripped away from him. And Cass looks sad about this. He tells Dean it doesn't matter why he's unable to get past that hurt. And when Dean protests that, Cass insists that Dean's not a machine. He's human, and he shouldn't just have to push a button to make things okay again. He can feel his feelings. But then Cass pushes right on like he hadn't just said something profound, and comments on his friend's name that Dean had let slip. Cass, that's an odd name. The next day, Dean pulls up in front of a convenience store and leaves Cass in the car while he goes inside. He checks his phone and then hears someone else come in the shop and is instantly on alert, pulling out the demon knife as the guy attacks him. Like Dean was expecting this. Like, we don't see the situation that led to them pulling over at this convenience store, but it kind of makes you wonder if Dean thought they were being followed or something and he just was trying to lure the guy away. But his phone is smashed in the fight, and when he goes to leave, 
there's two more demons there. And honestly, let's stop to wonder why they didn't just grab Cass out of the car and make a run for it. If they wanted Cass, he was right there, unguarded by Dean, right out in the open. And yet, they bothered to try to take out Dean Winchester. That's usually a poor choice for a demon. Dean goes down on the floor, he's forced to drop the demon knife during the fight, and is about to get beat on some more when one of the demons is killed from behind, and the second one smokes out. He thinks for a second that it was Cass, and is about to be mad at the guy about it, but when the demon drops to the ground, Dean sees that the stabber was Meg, and he's not sure that's much of an improvement. He pulls the shade on the front window of the shop while Meg interrogates him about what he's doing. Apparently, rumors have been intensifying about Emmanuel, but when Meg finds him, he's all snuggled up with Dean and the spitting image of poor dead Castiel. Meg asks how Castiel is even alive, and Dean doesn't know, but neither does Cass or Emmanuel. This chat fills us in on a lot of details, positioning Cass at the center of all of this, while Dean fills his pockets with snacks. Never waste an opportunity, I guess. But we're reminded that Crowley is a power player with a grudge against Meg, and against Cass, and Meg is basically on her own and looking for the power to protect herself. And Cass, he might not be too large a signal on their radar right now, but Now with a trail of dead demons they're leaving in their wake, someone is going to start putting the truth together soon. And someone's going to tell Crowley. Dean can probably imagine what Crowley would do to a Cass who has zero memories of him and their broken deal, which we have to assume Crowley is still very pissed about. And Meg has a price on her head too and needs friends. But Dean doesn't want to be friends with Meg. He thinks she just wants to use Cass as a weapon, but she throws it back at him for doing the same. Meg also points out the dead demons and says Dean could really use some backup. They don't trust each other, but their goals are not dissimilar. So Meg joins their little road trip. Meg asks Dean if they wouldn't be safer with Cass back to full power. She could jog his memory, but Dean rejects that. When they walk over to where Cass is waiting, he sees her face, knows she's a demon, and like he's trying to warn Dean, announces that. But Dean hesitantly tells Cass that, no, she is a friend. Meg introduces herself, says they're old friends. Cass looks confused. Dean looks upset that she would try and spill that already and then really pointedly clarifies that she means Dean and her, of course she just met Cass, and the awkwardness intensifies. Back at the hospital, Sam stops Marin in the hallways, apologizes for upsetting her, and asks her about the fire that sent her there. She gets defensive, but Sam tells her that he believes her that she didn't start it, Sam says he can help her before her brother tries to hurt her again. She cautiously follows Sam back into his room, where Lucifer is perched up on the desk, just grinning about all of this. She tells Sam that he looks even worse than before, that his organs need sleep, or his hair and nails are going to start falling out, and then his kidneys are going to shut down. She knows because she saw that in a movie. While Lucifer just laughs about it. Sam ignores all of that and asks about her brother. From his questions, it's clear he believes Marin is being haunted by her brother's ghost. She gets chills when he's coming. She can't see him, but she can hear him. And at first, she missed him and was glad to be able to talk to him again. But it got worse and worse over time until he started trying to kill her. And that's the tragic arc of every vengeful spirit and what we're about to see happen with Bobby's ghost over the next few episodes, too. So, this feels like a pointed reminder of all of that. She has no idea how Sam can help her, but Sam looks pleased that he actually can help her. 
He explains her brother is a ghost, stuck here. He asks if she has anything belonging to her brother, and Marin shows Sam the bracelet he made her after he'd cut his hand doing archery, so he bled on it as well. So, of course, the bracelet must be the object that her brother is tied to, and Sam asks her if there's any chance she can get him a lighter. We know what's going to happen now. (laughs) Back in the car, Cass points out the awkward tension. Dean sarcastically blames it on Meg because she's just awkward like that. And Cass turns to her and sincerely says that it must be difficult for her. Meg tells him that Dean was making a joke. And Cass sort of tries to force himself to laugh, like to pretend he understands the joke. And then just gives up. And all of this earns the saddest look from Dean, like... In that moment, he really misses his cast, you know? But seriously, you could just watch a montage of Jensen's facial expressions in this episode and still understand the entire emotional through-line of this week's plot. Back at the hospital, Marin returns to Sam with a lighter she pickpocketed from Marcus the orderly. Sam checks the hallway, barricades the door with a chair, and then scuttles around, pouring a salt circle. As Sam pours the salt, a Lucifer comes over and blows it away, and Sam falls over backwards and tells Marin that she's going to have to do it herself. Sam really just can't, because Lucifer won't let him. Marin finishes the circle, and Sam tells her to stay inside of it no matter what happens. As soon as Sam asks for the bracelet, The lights flicker, their breath ices over, and Marin's brother appears in the room begging her not to do this. She rips off the bracelet, apologizing that she has to. Her brother is angry. The door flies open, and the chair holding it shut flies across the room. All the light bulbs shatter one by one, and Sam finally gets the bracelet lit, and the spirit goes up in flames. But all that is sure to draw some flack from the orderlies, who will of course believe that Sam just went on a rampage and destroyed his room, broke all the lights. Sam tells Marin to get out of there, just before Marcus comes in to restrain Sam. And Sam probably knew that this would be the likely result of helping Marin. But he probably also figured that he could die now, knowing that he had helped one last person. The doctor examines him while Lucifer talks over his shoulder. The sedatives aren't working at all. We get a shot of Sam's fingernails, and they are starting to fall out. And he's barely able to focus on anything at all. The doctor's about to suggest some last-ditch surgical options to help. Not lobotomy, at least. But Sam can't even really maintain focus on the room, let alone the conversation. Outside... Dean has finally pulled up to the hospital. They park on a hill overlooking the entrance, and Cass is appalled. Meg explains that all the people milling around in front of the hospital entrance are all demons. Cass asks how many of those knives Dean has that can kill demons, just the one, unfortunately, and then asks what they're supposed to do. Meg sarcastically doubles down on that. Yeah, Dean, how do we blast through all those pesky demons? Dean pulls Meg away for a private conference. She points out that Sam is in there, probably in danger, and there's no time to play gentle with Cass anymore. Dean retorts that there's no telling what Cass would do if he actually remembers who he is and what he did. Cass could snap or just vanish. But of course, there's no such thing as privacy with an angel ten feet away. Cass interrupts when he realizes that they do know each other. He tries to sound confident when he says that he'll be fine. They can tell him the truth. But he falls pretty far short of actual confidence. Dean tries to argue back that Cass can't know that. He's only known himself for a couple of months, but Dean's known him for years and it's clear Dean doesn't think that Cass would take knowing the truth very well. 
But Meg just steamrollers over it and tells him that he's an angel. Cass is confused by this. Is that a flirtation? But Dean confirms it, explains that's why he has all of these powers. Cass is just confused why Dean wouldn't have told him that, because being an angel sounds pleasant. Dean replies that no, it is not pleasant. It's full of corruption and horror and pain and torture and it's terrible. Meg confirms that Dean would know because they were bestest friends. And this is when the big painful realization hits. He knows he's Cass. He knows he did something that Dean cannot forgive him for, but he still can't remember what. And he looks down like he's ashamed of this thing that he can't even remember. For Dean, it's something of a step in the right direction. But Meg pulls them back to the problem at hand. Cass has the power to smite all the demons. Unfortunately, he doesn't remember how. And Dean tries to reassure him about it. Tells him it's probably just like riding a bike. Cass replies that he doesn't know how to do that either. And as he rolls his eyes at this, Dean has this warm flash of, yeah, that's Cass, all right. And then Cass goes down to the entrance to try. Dean's concerned this is going to go poorly, but Meg has confidence in him. And I mean, really, what other option do they have? (laughs) Nothing's going to go well if this doesn't work. Last ditch and all. And we get our turn into Earth montage as Cass smites the demons one by one, regaining a little more of himself each time he uses his power. When he smites the first, we see a flash of him entering the barn and Lazarus rising, sparks flying, and meeting Dean there, showing Dean his wings as Dean looks on astonished. As he smites the next... We see the moment in 422 when he turns his back on heaven for Dean, banishing Zachariah and rescuing Dean from the green room in their attempt to stop the apocalypse. He then sees what he did to Sam, breaking his wall, and then the deal with Crowley for the purgatory souls, and his apology to Dean for not having listened to him in the first place before he tried to return those souls to purgatory. The final demon tries to run, but Cass zaps over in front of him, tells him running's not going to help you, and we don't get to see what memory was recovered last. It's left to us to imagine what he must have been experiencing then. But Cass turns to Dean and tells him that he remembers him. He remembers everything, including all the horrible things he did, to have hurt Dean so badly. He understands Dean's anger and that he can't get past it. Only, Cass doesn't know what Dean has been through for the better part of a year, thinking that Castiel was dead, grieving him, feeling abandoned about it. But Cass is horrified by what he did. He wants to know why Dean didn't tell him sooner. And Dean tells him that Sam is dying in there. And Cass argues back that it's just because of him that Sam is dying in there. And Cass feels the sudden and overwhelming guilt of all of that and tries to leave. Dean follows him. They were so close. He can't let this mission fall apart now. Back inside the hospital, we learn that Cass stopped smiting demons just a little too soon. There was one more, and he's currently got Sam hooked up to an electroshock therapy machine and intends to crank it up to 11. Back outside, Dean has to argue Cass's own defense to him. He tells him that if he remembers everything, then he knows that Cass did the best he could at the time under those circumstances. But Cass also sees the bigger picture, the death toll in heaven and on earth that he caused. Cass says that they didn't part friends. And Dean replies, so what? Like, it doesn't matter to him anymore. That baggage that he couldn't let go of just evaporated when he had actual real Cass back. 
And I don't think Cass gets that yet, that maybe he's back to fix it, or at least they can choose to try to fix it, because Dean hands him the ultimate olive branch in a gesture that I also think Cass doesn't fully understand the gravity of, but that we can. Dean goes to the trunk of his piece of shit car of the week after dragging it around through a dozen different cars and pulls out Cass's coat, still stained with his own blood that Dean fished from that lake, and Cass puts it on. At least he accepts this as a chance to earn Dean's forgiveness. He doesn't realize he already has it. He doesn't even bother cleaning the coat up. He could just magic it clean, but nope. He goes inside to smite the demon torturing Sam. He apologizes to Sam for having broken his wall in the first place and tries to heal him. But we see from Sam's perspective that he's still hallucinating. There's just not enough left of Sam's wall to rebuild anything. Back in Sam's room, Cass tells Dean that he can't heal Sam. And just as Dean's struggling to accept that Sam is just going to be like this until he dies, Cass has an idea that I believe he thinks solves all their problems. And in a weird, messed up plot way, it kind of does. This is the only sort of grand sacrifice that Cass could have pulled to even remotely begin to earn back Dean's trust, to repent for season six. He caused this problem, so the burden of fixing it should be on him, literally. And metaphorically, that's where it lands. As Dean watches helplessly, having no idea what Cass is about to do, Cass assures Dean that it's better this way. He apologizes to Sam again, touches Sam, and takes all the damage to Sam's soul on himself. For the first time in weeks, Sam is awake, healed, fully himself, and the hallucinations are gone, because Cass is experiencing them now. But unlike Sam, Cass is an angel. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need to eat and he can slowly begin to heal himself of that damage that Lucifer inflicted on Sam's soul. But in the meantime, Sam and Dean have to leave Cass there at the hospital. There's no way they can protect a catatonic angel. They just have to hope that leaving Meg there with him is enough. They killed every other demon who knew Cass was there, and it's the best that they can do for him right now. Sam questions Dean's choice in trusting Meg, and Dean insists that it's not a deal with a demon. It's mutually assured destruction if either Meg or Cass steps out of line. And Dean, he really doesn't sound all that happy about it either. It really is far less than ideal, and Dean is still reeling from Cass's return, the fact that he got to have Cass with him there at all, even for five minutes as himself, and he didn't get more than a vague sort of olive branch gesture before Cass was just gone again. But at least this time, Cass is starting out on a positive foot, having finally saved Sam from all the torments he'd endured since he'd landed in hell. And yes, it is tempting to blame Cass for all of Sam's problems, but that's just wildly unfair. Cass didn't send Sam to the cage in the first place. Sam volunteered for that gig. Cass just tried and failed to pull him out again. And it all feels like some horribly cruel trick played on all of them by the narrative, yes? I think we all understand at this point that it really was punishment resurrections for Cass each time, courtesy of Chuck and the stories that he wanted to tell. They didn't create these situations. They were all trying to do the best they could to stop these things from happening, and they all just kept falling short. Yes, Cass chose to break Sam's wall in a fit of desperation, and at the time, he fully believed that he'd be able to fix it again afterwards. 
but circumstances prevented that. And then he was gone, and Sam and Dean were left to clean up all of this mess that he left behind. But we can't even fully blame Cass for Sam's wall breaking. Death warned them from the start that it was only a jury-rigged sort of solution, and it was already beginning to crack long before Cass broke it. Ironically, Cass breaking it was the beginning of the process of Sam finally being able to put himself fully back together. Even if Sam still tried to distance himself from the less savory parts of himself, they're still a part of who he is as a person, and he can never truly be whole without them. This is the foundation for Dean rebuilding his relationship with Cass in a new way. It's the foundation for Sam to restart his life with a clean slate. And it's a chance for Cass to begin to redeem himself. And unfortunately for Cass, it's a foundational part of his personality that he will struggle with for the rest of the series. This belief that he always needs to redeem himself, to repeatedly earn his place in Team Free Will and that he is never enough just for who he is as a person without constantly proving his worth. But for good and ill, that's where this episode ends. And it sure is a doozy, but it does serve as a soft reset for our three main characters as we run screaming toward Carver era now. But first, we need to help Garth out with a strange hunt in Season 7, Episode 18, Party on, Garth! I appreciate where that particular episode falls, because it shows us that even though he got Sam back at his side, fully healed up and everything, all back to factory issue Sam, there's still stuff troubling Dean. He's still drinking for the record, he's still worried about Cass, and he's finally free to actually mourn Bobby's loss. And it honestly feels like one of the first times the show shines a beacon on the fact that, for Dean, just having Sam by his side is no longer enough for his own personal happiness. Dean needs something more. But we'll talk about all of that next week. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr at Mittensmorgle or at SPN George. You can find me on Discord and Blue Sky as Mittensmorgel, or you can email me at mittensmorgel at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. I'm actually getting ahead of schedule recording these, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to end up with far too many of them in the can, like months out. <laughs> but it's snowing here, and I don't really feel like doing anything else today, so here we are. I hope everyone else is staying warm and cozy if it's still even cold out by the time this episode posts. So, and actually, one in Columbo one more thing fashion, Cass, we already know, has some sort of profound bond with Dean, with his soul, right? Yet now, Cass has taken on some sort of damage from Sam's soul that acts like a sort of bond to humanity in a different sort of way, in a kind of a worst sort of way possible to take on hell damage like that, you know? We saw what it did to Sam, and what an awful thing for Cass to consciously pick up of his own free will, you know? But he did, and something about Cass is immutably changed by all of this interaction with humanity, regardless of if it's through Dean or through his own experience or through Sam now, Cass is learning more and more about humanity, and it's not something he can just reject or put away or put down, and the narrative will begin to deal with that far more directly. And I mean, even by the end of season eight, Cass is going to be human, so I'm going to start pointing those sorts of incidents out more and more as we get through the next season or so. But uh, I just needed to get that out. Because I still don't see how anyone can look at the show and think that Cass was destined to become a powerful angel at the end of the series that just, unless you hate Cass or you're just like rejecting every bit of character growth he ever experienced, it just, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's me. So, 
if you're a angel cast endgame truther, you're probably going to hate the rest of this podcast series. Um, <laughs> unless you feel like learning something about it and seeing it from my point of view. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm just depressed because it's friggin' snowy out here. Anyway, have a good one, everyone.